Okay, in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we uh, find ourselves at verse 21. Let me read the scriptures. You can follow along with me. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, you, if you are present, presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Lord, we, um, as we read your word, we are convicted oftentimes by our own anger at people and unforgiveness. We pray that your word would have an effect on us We pray that the Spirit of God would take the words that are written on the pages of the Bible before us and make them alive so that we might indeed experience all the good things that you have for us. As we yield our lives to you, we pray in Jesus' name. I've been on staff here at the church since September of 1982 both as an associate and senior pastor. And probably the most, one of the most destructive elements that are in the church uh, involves the very subject that Jesus covers here. The inability of Christians, when there is an offense, to somehow resolve it in a Christ-honoring way. Yet at the same time, I've seen tremendous blessings as people yield themselves to what Jesus tells us in this passage and uh, open their hearts to sincerely try to find a way to resolve difficulties with their brother or sister in the Lord. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give life and life more abundantly. However, that's not just for those who hear the word, but to those who take the word of God and apply it in their lives. Now, if I've learned anything about marriage, I've learned one thing. Unless you're able to forgive your mate for those things that you have done, she has done to you or you have done to her, unless you're able to forgive your mate, you will not stay married, you'll probably get divorced. Or have a dead marriage. Now, if that's true for marriage, it's also true here in the church. 
church and outside of the church in our family and in our neighborhood. In our series in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes a major step in kind of changing what he's been saying. And through the balance of chapter 5, he will talk primarily from verse 20. Here's the principle he's going to talk from, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. There were things that were taught by the religious leaders of the day that was so missing the mark that if you followed what they were saying and you gave yourself to them, it would keep you out of the kingdom of God. So throughout chapter 5, he'll say, you have heard that it was said, and then he'll state something, but I say to you. So he's going to clarify what's the heart of God for many of these things that he had been talking about. There's six things in chapter 5. He talks about um, solving difficulties with one another. He talks about uh, lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about how we use our mouth. He talks about taking vengeance. He also talks about dealing with people who are enemies. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now these subjects were prime during his day, but they're also, as I reviewed them, did you see? They're very much right where we are today. Someone once asked Mrs. Billy Graham, had she ever thought in all the years that they were married of divorcing Billy Graham? She thought for a moment and said, no. Divorce, no. Murder, yes. (laughs) Now, most of us have never murdered anyone. Hopefully none of us have ever murdered anyone. Uh, That's good. That's very good. You're doing okay. However, notice how Jesus takes the sixth commandment and how he tells the truth about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what was being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees, the current religious leaders of his day, and then take a look at what he was saying is at the very heart of the sixth commandment. Let's first... What the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching is found in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now at first glance, these folks seem to be okay. There's the sixth commandment. Don't murder. However, they they were having the attitude as long as they didn't do the actual act, they had never murdered anybody, that they were okay with God. Even though perhaps in their heart or in their relationships with people, they had areas of unforgiveness or areas of bitterness and angry towards them, and yet they were thinking they were okay with God. Jesus will say, not so. Notice also, if you would, They quote the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. But the second half of what they were saying is not found in Exodus chapter 20. 
you shall, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So they were adding their traditions to what the commandment actually said. And they were seeing, they were limiting the consequences of their action. They were saying he'll be liable to the court, but much more important, who is important? Who are you to be liable to? The Lord God. That's much more important than some silly court that you'd be held accountable to. So they were limiting the aspect of the commandment and at the same time, they were limiting the consequences if you were to disobey the commandment. That's where the Pharisees were missing it. Now let's take a look at what Jesus was teaching which consumes the balance of our section. Jesus goes right past the outward commandment which was good and gets to the very heart the real source of what the problem was. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew 15, Jesus was confronted with people who were saying, your disciples eat with unwashed hands and that's going to defile you. Jesus comes back to his disciples and in chapter 15, Verse 18, he says to his disciples, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slander. These are the things that defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Jesus goes right past the outward do not murder and moves right to the issue which is in verse 22 and verse 23 and 24. Here he gives both a negative and a positive. First the negative. Look what he says. But I say unto you everyone who is angry angry. Now that word means having feelings of hatred, bitterness, unpleasant or unkind resentment in your heart. So you have that feeling in your heart and it expresses itself in two ways. You would either say you are good for nothing or you are a fool. Good for nothing means having an attitude of contempt, an attitude of contempt scorn or derision cutting their reputation their confidence and their support away from them you fool is expressive of an abusive vilifying the person and he says this anger that's in your heart that causes you to say those kind of words are as reprehensible now get this are as reprehensible as the actual act of murder. That's the point he's making. The real heart of the commandment is found as Jesus sees it. Now you're saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Neil. That seems a little harsh. Seems a little harsh. Well, let's listen to what his brother, his stepbrother said in James chapter 4. Let me tell you, read this scripture. 
James chapter 4, verse 1. Here it is. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, James is speaking to Christians in this book. Chapter 4, verse 1, he's talking to Christian people. And he says, you're lusting, you're fighting with each other, and this causes you to murder. You're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Neil. You're talking to Christians. I would suggest a brief review of church history, which is littered with accounts of Christians killing other Christians because of disagreements that they had with one another. That goes right back to verse 22. Jesus says the very root of the problem, the very root of the problem The very root of the problem of you shall not murder is rooted and grounded in your anger and your bitterness and resentment towards others. Just as reprehensible as the actual act. So that's the negative. He says, don't do that. But then notice the positive. He says, but do this. Verses 23 and 24. If you know that someone has an offense against you, then you are not to just um, be bitter and angry against them, but you initiate and you go and you try to make amends with that person. You take active steps to try and heal the problem that exists between you and your fellow Christian. So there's some things that he says, don't do this, but do this. Okay. That is the heart of the issue. Now, someone would ask, well, why does Jesus tell us these things? What it is in his heart? In his heart, he knows that there are effects. There are effects. So the issue we've looked at, now let's look at the effects, which is found in verses 23 through 26. There's effects on us. If we have anger or unforgiveness in our hearts and we're not resolving difficulties between it, it causes problems. It causes problems among us and it causes problems in us. Look what he says in verses 25 and 26. He alludes to that. He makes an illustration. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. There are consequences that happen as a result of disobeying the command that Jesus gives. Let me give you an illustration. In the book of Galatians, chapter 5, Paul writes what he calls deeds of the flesh. Okay, now I'm not going to go over all of them. I'm going to read just some of them. Here's a list of things that are what Paul calls deeds of the flesh. Listen to them. Not all of them, but just some of them. 
Here they are. Verse 20 of chapter 5. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings. Is that the context? Is that what we're talking about? Paul calls those things, which goes right back to our chapter, deeds of the flesh. Now, if you turn the page, chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, what happens? You have a choice. You can sow to the spirit or you can sow to the flesh. Listen to what he says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his flesh, which is just what I talked about in the previous verse, in verse 20, for those who sow to the flesh will from the flesh reap What's the word? Corruption. There it is. There's the effect. However, if we don't do that, but sow to the Spirit, the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. What is sowing to the Spirit? Listen to what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So there are effects when we disobey the clear teaching of Jesus on this particular issue. We sow corruption to our lives. Perhaps the clearest example that I can think of is in the movie, came to my mind, Amadeus. Do you remember the movie Amadeus? The, the, the musician, the composer, Sally Airy, was a wonderful, he was a good composer, but he could not come anywhere near Mozart. Do you remember the story? Mozart was incredibly gifted. Sally Airy was the chief musician, but his jealousy and anger and bitterness that Mozart, who really was just uniquely gifted as a musician and a composer, was so above him. And his anger and his bitterness ruined his life. And in the end, if you remember the movie, ruined his relationship with God. His bitterness and jealousy against Mozart ruined his life. He sowed to the flesh and he reaped corruption. So there's effects on us. But also, my friends, as I alluded to to Salieri, there's effects on our relationship with God. Look with me in verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, if you're aware of a brother or a sister who has something against you, you're to leave your offering before you go to worship and settle the issue before you come to worship God. What is he saying there? He's saying the priority is not on worship, but as the priority is what? Being reconciled to your brother and sister in Christ. The priority with God is not with the worship, but the resolution of the difficulty between you and your friend. That means, if you allow me, there's a separation there. 
God is not interested so much in your worship as he is in you reconciling with your Christian brother or sister. There's a scripture, Psalm 66, 18. It says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Probably the most classic example in this um, in this stead is found in 1 Samuel. You remember the story? Saul, the first king, was given direction from the Lord to deal with the Amicalites. He was to wipe everybody out. It was a judgment of God. He wasn't supposed to keep any of the sheep or any of the goats. Everybody was to be destroyed. Well, when Samuel, the prophet, shows up after the battle, he sees a whole bunch of sheep and goats. And Samuel says to Saul, hey, what's with this? And Saul says, well, I've saved the best of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the choicest things, and I am going to sacrifice them to the Lord. Samuel, the prophet, says to him, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination as, ad, 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 excuse me, as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king. So when we disobey the Lord, specifically concerning this, there seems to be a separation because the Lord puts a priority. Don't bother coming until you solve this issue. So there's an effect on us in our relationship with the Lord. Now that's what I call a lesser effect, but there's a greater effect. Look with me in chapter 6. Chapter 6. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to what he says as he closes, not the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. In verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others... For their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Same context. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, I don't know if you've read that scripture, but the first time I read that, I thought, what's that saying? Is he putting a condition on our salvation? that before the Lord can forgive us, we must go ahead and forgive everyone that has, has hurt us? Well, it would seem at face value to be saying that, but I don't believe there's a condition to our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, not of works. So what then possibly is Jesus saying? Well, the best I can do with it is this. If... Um, 
If you are having trouble forgiving people, if that's not a growing ability in your life, in your spiritual life, and that is not true of you, if you are a bitter, unforgiving person, there's a very good chance that you have not received the forgiveness of God for you. It's not taken place. Why? Well, for two reasons. First of all, the Lord gives you the power when you're born again. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, you now have resources in which to begin to live a forgiving life. You now have the power to do that. But also, if you've come to terms with the unbelievable forgiveness that you have had from the Father, should that not begin to humble you and enable you to forgive those who have hurt you? So the first thing I would say, the first thing I say, what I think Jesus is saying there, if you have a a bitter, angry, unforgiving spirit, there's a good chance that you haven't forgiven, you haven't received the forgiveness of your father for yourself. Because the ability to truly forgive people comes in, in depth when we know the forgiveness of the Father. But there's also an eschatological application to this. Because it could very well be that you could, as an unforgiving person, live your whole life and have a bitter, unforgiving spirit. And when we come to the end of the age, Jesus would say to you, Depart from me, you who work wickedness. I never knew you. I never knew you. You thought you were forgiven, but the fact is you really weren't because you have never been able to forgive others of their transgressions. I would say as we look at our text, If you have a bitter, unforgiving spirit, if you're not able to resolve difficulties with your brothers and sisters, it's an indication that you have, and I choose my words carefully, deep spiritual problems. Deep spiritual problems. And I'll leave that just laying on the ground, and I'll let you interpret that. So we've looked at the issues. We've looked at the effects. You're saying, well, Pastor Neil, you're laying out some pretty heavy stuff. What's the solution? I'm so glad you asked. Let's take a look. Back to our chapter, chapter 23, uh, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He says there, if you have offended somebody, if it comes to your mind that some brother or sister as you have offended, what is it saying? You, as the spiritual one, if you're spiritual, you are to take the initiative. You are to humble yourself. You are to go to that person. You are to ask them to forgive you. And you are to reconcile with that person. That's exactly what verses 23 and 24. You take the initiative. Now, you're saying, well, Pastor Neil, what happens if they don't forgive me? Well, I'll talk about that in just a moment. But Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. So you take the initiative. That's your job. That's your responsibility. Okay. Now, this subject is 
is rather varied, so I have to look at a few other scriptures. So bear with me. Let's turn to Matthew 18. Now in Matthew 18, verse 15, some people say that um, this is dealing with a public sin or a sin against you. Somebody has sinned against you. Now in Matthew chapter 5, it was you had sinned against them. Now here's the other side. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you by the mouth of every two or three witnesses. Every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be as a Gentile or a tax collector. And that last option is when we get to church discipline. Okay. Now, I would say, in looking at this scripture, I also think this applies to when you go to someone and you ask them to forgive you and they refuse to forgive you. Then I think Matthew 18 also applies in that, in that sense. And so what we have here is um, there's, there's instruction on if you have offended someone or if they have personally offended you and there's steps here. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say Go around to everybody else and give prayer requests. Notice he says it doesn't go around and talk about the offense. Go around and gather allies on your side so you can begin a big fight. That's not what he says. He says go to him privately. And then if he doesn't listen, bring two or three others. And then if he doesn't listen, bring the church involved. And then if they don't, they still won't repent then we go into church discipline, which is another whole subject that we won't go into. Okay. Now, notice um, with me in verses 21 and 22, after Jesus finishes speaking, Peter comes to him and says to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Verse 22, Jesus says, I do not say unto you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Get the idea, okay? Now, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17, where we have a slightly different time, but a similar context. Notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verses three and four. Same context. Jesus says, be on your guard, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Same context? Talking about the same thing. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, did you notice the added element that's found in Luke 17? that's not found in Matthew 18. And the missing element is what? If he repents. If he repents. Now, you would say to me, well, Pastor Neil, how about uh, the person, how am I supposed to forgive the person 
if the person is saying to me, eh, get out of here, I didn't do anything wrong. Or how about the person who continues to sin against you? Jesus seems to be saying in Luke 17 that there is a condition to you forgiving him to bringing full restoration to the relationship and the condition is what? The person must be willing to acknowledge that there's been an offense committed. Is that not what Jesus is saying? Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. Look with me in Ephesians, one other scripture. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Look at the context. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Are we talking about the same context? Same thing. Be kind to one another. These are the words of Paul. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Now here's the, here's, the, here's the caveat. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How do you get God's forgiveness? Do you get God's forgiveness when you're in rebellion against his word? When you're shaking your fist at him? When you're denying his word and you're not living in repentance? No, my friends. My friend, my friend. You receive God's forgiveness when you repent. Is that not true? And Paul's admonition here, Paul's admonition is here, as we are to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, in Christ's death, however, in Christ's death, there is a, what I call a potential. And you're saying, well, what do you mean? Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He said, there is the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. So there's a potential there. If one repents, the potential becomes reality. Is that not what it is? Jesus died for the sins of the world. And when we repent, we reap the benefits. So what was a potential is now a reality. And that's true also for us. What do I mean? In Hebrews 12, 15, the writer of Hebrews tells us, be careful and don't let a root of bitterness grow in your heart. Now it is true, it is true that until that person who has offended you repents, there can be what? No restoration, no real physical forgiveness between that person until they repent. But the Bible enjoins us, be very careful not to let a root of bitterness and anger grow in your heart. And that takes us all the way back to verse 22 in our chapter. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Romans 12, 21 tells us, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so we looked at the issue, the effects, 
the solution. Let me give you an application as a way in a story. Many years ago, while I was attending seminary, I was working in a lumber yard in San Juan Capistrano. And as I was working there, I worked Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And I went to school Tuesday through Friday. And because I had been working there a long time, they'd made me the foreman for the weekend. There was a man there who was Bill, who was working full time, but he was working there a shorter time than I. And he became very angry that I was the foreman, even though he worked full time and only was a part timer. And he began to give me difficulties. And he began to um, get the other members of the weekend crew working against me. And so oftentimes they would all hide when it got real busy and they'd leave me by myself with all the customers up in the front. And I began to badmouth him and hold a lot of anger in my heart towards him. And I began to tell the boss what a jerk he was. And he did the same to me and things got really, really bad. Till one Saturday morning, the Lord, as clear as I can remember, said, Neil, I want you to go to Bill and ask him to forgive you for all the evil and things that you've had in your heart and all the things that you've said behind his back. And I said, no way, Lord, will I do that. (laughs) And I fought with him all day. However, by the end of the day, his heavy hand, you know when the Lord's heavy hand is on you? His heavy hand was on me all day. So around 4.30, I said, hey, Bill, can I talk to you? And he says, what? What do you want? And I says, and I got, I t- we went around the corner. I said, Bill, I want to ask you to forgive me for all the things that I've had against you, all the things that I've said behind your back. I would ask you to forgive me. And he, he looked at me and literally his mouth was like, and you know what he said to me? He said, Neil, I forgive you. And would you forgive me for all the things that I've done against you? And from that day on, from that day on, we began to work together and we actually became pretty good friends. Now, there's a blessing here. This is not just monetarily. The union found out that I was part-time and yet I was the foreman. And so they made Bill. They gave him the foreman's position. Now that sounds kind of bad, but we were friends and we were working real well together. However, since they had given me, the company had paid me extra money per hour to be the foreman. They couldn't retract that form, that pay. And so not only I no longer had the responsibility of being foreman, but I was being paid the foreman's price. But wait, there's more. Several, a year later, I was leaving that job and I was coming to work up closer to the church because I was working part-time here at the church. And at a pastor's conference in June, we had found out Pastor Chuck was taking a special limited number of pastors and their wives on a special tour to Israel. And Jimmy, who was the senior pastor back then, and I, we signed up. We signed up by faith to get in the spots, but we we didn't have the money. Well, as I was getting ready to leave that job, Bill came to me and he said, Now, Neil, be sure you get your back vacation pay. And I said to him, 
Well, the boss told me when I hired on, since I was part-time, I didn't get any vacation. He says, no, let's look at the contract. So we went and looked at the labor contract, and sure enough, they were supposed to pay me on a percentage basis. Only, I was only working three days a week. That was in the contract. We called the main office in Santa Ana, and the, and the head bookkeeper said, oh my heavens, we've never paid you for your vacation time. Do you know how much money they gave me in that check? Would you believe it was over $1,000? It was the exact amount of money that I needed to go on the trip to Israel with Pastor Chuck. My friends, my friends, let me tell you, when you yield yourself to the word of God, there's blessings and grace. He had a blessing for me. God had a blessing for me. But I had to humble myself. I had to take the initiative and I had to ask Bill to forgive me. Just like Jesus said. Now, here's the question. Listen carefully. What's your problem? Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to say to you that your grace overwhelms us. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where your word so convicts us. And we're so thankful for that because we know when we yield to your word, we find the blessings of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God. So help us, dear Lord, and perhaps there's some who are thinking about a relationship, a hurt that was done to them, or a hurt that they've caused, and they have ignored that. And it hasn't allowed you to work fully in their lives. So to that end, we pray that your word would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.